Hello, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Stories from Sydney. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And in this special bonus promotional episode, we're going to be cracking open the vault to unearth a couple of snippets from earlier stories in our podcast series um, about the Macquarie Valley just on the other side of the Blue Mountains, more specifically the rivers on the other side of the Blue Mountains. We certainly are going to be, Alistair, and I'm actually a little bit surprised that you're letting me get away with drawing even more attention to our stories that aren't strictly about Sydney, but we're doing it for a very important reason. Yeah, look, I was outraged at the time and I continue to be disgruntled by our episodes that aren't about Sydney, but I've moved on in most ways and I am actually very, very excited to uh, be doing this episode to announce some of your exciting work outside of the podcast that you've been doing uh, over many years, I guess. Um, So you've alluded to it a handful of times, I think, mostly in these episodes that weren't strictly about Sydney. Um, But I believe you'd like to share something with our listeners uh, that you've been working on. I do, yeah. So for those who have been paying very close attention to some of my episodes, you'll recall that for the last few years, I've been working on a documentary And it's about the people, ecology, and also of importance to note to our listeners at Stories from Sydney about the history of the Macquarie River in inland New South Wales. And I'm excited to announce that the doco is finally complete. On June 9th, we premiered Following the Flow to a full house at the cinema in Dubbo. And I'm excited to say that at the beginning of July, we're going to be bringing the show to the Golden Age Cinema in Surrey Hills. So as you can see, the story does come back to Sydney eventually. (laughs) We always bring it around at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm I'm very, very excited uh, about this screening in Sydney coming up. Uh, Bringing the whole family out to Dubbo was sadly for the weeknight premiere. Just one, you know, one bridge too far, but uh, we'll definitely be (laughs) at this uh, this Sydney screening. One steel truss bridge too far. (laughs) Exactly. Um, yeah, so, so really, really looking forward to that. Um, are you going to be doing any kind of questions and answer sessions in these uh, Sydney screenings? I will be. I practiced my Q&A uh, undertaking in Dubbo, and I'm ready to bring it out again uh, on Saturday the 2nd and Sunday the 3rd. At this stage, there are two dates at the Golden Age, and I'll be running a short Q&A about the documentary after both screenings. Awesome. Uh, just to clarify for our listeners, I will not be involved in either the queuing or the aing, but that shouldn't really be an issue since Jed's episodes do tend to be the most downloaded, as he likes to remind me regularly. <laughs> well, it's an open floor, so you might want to do some queuing. Yeah, maybe I should prepare some. Um, but yeah, so for, for our listeners who might be interested in coming along or any other curious punters who might turn up at the golden age on the evening, uh, what, what do we have to look forward to in this doco? So following the flow is is really at its heart the story about the Macquarie River. It all came about in late 2019 when, for those who are familiar with the Central West, will recall that we're in the midst of an unprecedented drought, really. And I just moved to the area and I could see that a lot was going wrong uh, with our land and water management. But it felt like there were a lot of voices shouting very loudly about what was going wrong and it was hard to get a clear picture So I set out to find out for myself. The first thing I did was called my best mate, Nick Allen, who's handily a videographer. And the two of us set out to explore the Macquarie River from top to bottom, all the way from Oberon in the Blue Mountains, 
all the way down to the Macquarie Marshes out near Bawarana. And we spoke to all sorts of people about about their relationship to the river. And that's First Nations people, ecologists, uh, recreational fisher people, uh, graziers and irrigators, water managers, everyone who has a stake in the river and has their own perspective. And I think through that, I ended up with a much clearer picture about some of the issues facing our river systems out west, but also just the beauty and complexity of the system as it functions outside of outside of the people that affect it so much. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. And probably one of those stories that you otherwise don't hear a really well-rounded multi-perspective view on. Like you might see it briefly on the news if you're stuck in Sydney, just watching it on TV, or like a brief snippet of some really dried up looking river, but you might not know all of the different uh, stakeholders and what, what's going on and what the arguments are about and how, how the management actually works. Yeah, and so to try and make that complexity approachable, we focused on this one valley in the, in the Murray-Darling Basin, the Macquarie Valley, but I think that the stories we found really do echo across the whole basin. So hopefully, by watching the film, people can get a better understanding of some of the issues that we're facing out west and why they're so hard to solve. Yeah, right. And uh, as a city slicker who barely ever makes it further west than Katoomba, and even that's on an exciting trip out, <laughs> what, 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 yes. can I, uh, <laughs> what can I gather from um, yeah, what, of learning a bit more about what's going on west of the mountains? And yeah, how, how does that kind of affect us as Australians and as Sydney-siders? Well, the Murray-Darling Basin is, covers one-seventh of the land mass of, um, of mainland Australia. So it's really enormous. And if you don't head west very often, you might only know it as the source of uh, a lot of the food you eat and the cotton and the clothes you wear. Um, but there's obviously a lot more to the valley than just that. It's really Sydney's backyard. The valley starts, as I said, just near Oberon, which isn't too far away at all. But I think that the great thing about following the flow is the cast of of classic rural Aussie characters. There's a lot of great people who have a lot of passion for the river. And it was really amazing that people were so willing to, you know, open their arms and, and share their part of the river with us. Yeah, awesome. Um, and we do have some episodes that now, in retrospect, I can see why you had so much information about rivers that you wanted to share <laughs> with me. <laughs> Yeah, and, and why so many of them started just on the other side of the Blue Mountains. <laughs> yes. yes, inland river systems don't have a huge amount of overlap with stories from Sydney. Um, anywhere I could get away with it, I certainly did. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I'd like to bring us back to a couple of snippets from past episodes. So <laughs> before we do that, if you'd like to find out more about the doco, then please head to followingtheflow.com.au. You can watch the trailer there and you can find out more information about screenings and how to get in touch with us. So without further ado, here is a short snippet from our episode Celebrating a New Beginning Across the Blue Mountains, where we discussed the early European expeditions across the Blue Mountains and the building of the Cox's Road to the new settlement in Bathurst. The first part of this story is about the... Um, the Blue Mountains before the British invasion. And we don't know a lot about indigenous habitation in the Blue Mountains, but it's suspected that it wasn't somewhere that was lived in year round, but rather a place that different nations and groups went to um, for 
you know, many of the similar reasons people might visit the Blue Mountains today um, to meet with people from other sides of the mountains. Um, it's a beautiful place, trade, corroborees, you know, all these sorts of reasons. So the main groups we're talking about here are the Darug coming up from Western Sydney, um, the Wiradjuri coming up from the area around Lithgow and Bathurst, and the Gundagara people who are coming up from the Southern Highlands. And so there are a few sites associated with Indigenous history in the Blue Mountains, but based on, yeah, fairly limited knowledge, ongoing knowledge about it, it seems like it wasn't somewhere where there was people living in the winter, basically. And also in droughts, there's no water up there. So not really suited to full-time habitation. Right. That makes sense. That I had also read a little bit about that uh, before. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can fact check me then? Uh, well, from my limited research, I can indeed. That's exactly what I've heard. Excellent. That's a rubber stamp. So when the British first got to the point of crossing the Blue Mountains, which um, took tw- took 25 years, actually, from from the arrival of the First Fleet in Sydney Cove, there's no first-hand information on this, but it's suspected that the, the routes that were eventually successful in crossing the mountains um, were tipped off by the Darug people. So the, the people that found these routes through were told by Darug people or potentially even directly guided through them because they're extraordinarily difficult to find on your own. And as people, Darug people would have known these routes to get to the bloom, to get up to the mountains, there's a strong chance that when the Europeans did eventually find their way through, it would have been um, guided by Darug people or at least on their advice. And I think it's a pretty good indication that the Darug people were quite tight-lipped about them since it took 25 years for anyone to figure it out. Yeah, and would these have also been the kind of tracks that maybe there was somewhat more beaten down paths of like some sorts? It was easier to follow those tracks than it was to just beat through otherwise kind of overgrown land? By all accounts, it was unbelievably dense, the bushland, when the first... uh, British explorers did come through. So, yes, there was probably like a foot foot tracks, but, gee, they must have been narrow because the process of clearing just to make it wide enough for horses to come through seemed to be pretty intense. Right. Um, And the other thing is the mountains is really cliffy. Mm -hmm. So what would happen when all... Because obviously a lot of people tried to get up there prior to Wentworth, Lawson and Blacksland. But what had happened is they'd come to these cliffs and be like, well, there's just no way through here. So the the extra knowledge that would have been necessary was to do with how to overcome those obstacles. Right, and find ridges to go along, which I believe the train line now goes along a ridge, right? Yeah, exactly. So the first the first successful crossing of the Blue Mountains by the new colonialists was by Wentworth, Lawson and Blacksland, which was in May 1813. Um, so that's the sort of story that is well told in Australian history books. Oh, yeah. All of your primary school, uh, you know, they have houses that they're named after. My primary school, there was Blacksland, Lawson and Wentworth. And then they needed a fourth one. I don't know why you need four houses. I can't remember who they named that after. (laughs) Well, hopefully they named it after uh, George Evans, because we'll get to him shortly. Now, do you know anything about the crossing of Wentworth, Lawson and Blacksland? I once, out of interest, read the first couple of pages of Blacksland's diary, I believe, but I didn't get much out of it. I can't remember much of it uh, anymore, apart from the fact that he was talking about how dense the bushland was, which I guess is interesting because all of the accounts that we seem to have of the kind of plains around Sydney are all 
kind of gobsmacked Europeans at how well managed the land is and how widely spaced the trees are and that it looks like they keep comparing it to English gardens and things like that. So I guess it would have been a very different uh, area, as you were saying, the Blue Mountains. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The story of the Central West in that regard was one of cleared open plains with the odd tree and then densely forested hilltops. So Mm -hmm. I'm guessing the mountains was the same story. They were fairly wealthy landowners who were heading west to try and find themselves some more land. They weren't sort of on an expedition for the for the greater public good. They weren't given kind of instructions by the government or anything like that. They had Macquarie's sanction for the trip, but it wasn't directed from the government. Okay. So they've also got fairly interesting backgrounds. Um, Blacksland was a typical well-off free settler. So he came out from England with free passage paid for by the Crown brought all his possessions to Australia where he realised they were much more valuable and so sold them at enormous profit. He was given a huge land grant and free convict Mm labour. And so with all those components provided courtesy of the crown, it was almost impossible not to become phenomenally wealthy. Yeah. And he was also one of the first winemakers in the colony. Ooh, I was wondering when the drinks were going to come in. (laughs) Now, Lawson, he was a surveyor. And he was one of those jack-of-all-trades pastoralists that I mentioned last episode. Uh-huh. Um, so he also ended up stupendously wealthy and with vast estates by virtue of land grants. Right, because you're just being given huge pieces of land that was obviously Indigenous land and just being told by a government, this is now yours and, it's wor- and it would then become to be worth a lot of money, this land that you officially had the paperwork for. Well, and it was enormously profitable to run cattle on it. It was great, great country for cattle okay. and, and sheep. So, and they had free labor by virtue of convict labor that was also given to them. So, you know, if you got a land grant. Sorry, this is in what's now greater Western Sydney. Yeah. Cool. Yep. So Lawson ended up actually being the first person to take cattle across the mountains. So obviously the trip worked out quite well for him in the end. And he was the first person to find coal west of the mountains. Oh. So based on those two things, you could probably say he is more responsible than any one other person for the envi- environmental degradation of inland New South Wales. <laughs> Damn that man. I didn't even know there was much coal inland. I thought it was all kind of around Newcastle was the accessible coal. Uh, no, there's a big, big power station and coal mine around Lithgow. So a go. lot of Sydney's power comes from west of the mountains. Yeah. Thank you for telling me that. I did not know that. And uh, number three is Wentworth, and Wentworth is a currency lad. Oh, now I believe that that might mean that he was originally... No, he's the child of convicts, is that correct? Or he's born in Australia? There you go. It means it means someone's born in Australia. Okay. Um, so he, was, he sort of became to be the first famous white Australian that was born in Australia. Okay. Overseas. And he was the young gun of the team. And he also made an incredible fortune from all the high productivity land that he was given and also an inheritance from his dad. And he is probably best remembered as the owner and commissioner of Vaucluse House. Oh, okay. So that might well have been his party that you were referring to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Sorry. Yes, that is exactly who it is. That's why the electorate there is still called Wentworth. Yeah, exactly. And so they made it across the mountains. They got to a place called Mount Blacksland. Well, I take it they named it that. It wasn't already. <laughs> there was a sign. And so that's just south of Lithgow. Mm-hmm. And they, from there, could see wide open plains. Thought, yep, that'll do. Turned around and headed okay. back. Were they marking the track or something, like Hansel and Gretel style, so that they could find their way? Well, Lawson's a surveyor, so they were doing one better than uh, <laughs> dropping breadcrumbs. Yeah, they were, they were blazing trees and... Um, 
Also, Lawson took took notes on bearing and distance so that it could be retraced fairly okay. easily. That was May of 1813. In November of 1813, Macquarie sent the assistant surveyor, who was George uh-huh. Evans, and he took along with him a man called Burns, who was in Blacksland, Lawson and Wentworth's party, to be his guide. Right, okay. And, and I wanted to ask a bit more about these trees that were being blazed. So they were carrying fire with them and then kind of burning a tree every once in a while so you could just kind of follow those as your markers of going the right way. Um, no, they blaze them with an axe. So you basically just oh. cut a big, a big gash in a tree and then when you come to it, it's quite obvious that there's a mark in the tree. That makes a lot more sense. I was wondering how they were carrying the fire around or if they started a new fire every time and it seemed wildly like could have gone very wrong in many ways. But yeah. blazing with an axe makes a lot more sense. Yeah, and it's a it's a method of um like a of marking trees that was used as surveying until relatively recently. So sometimes when you're out looking for reference marks placed from a survey from the 19th century, you'll find a tree that's been blazed, and it might have an arrow pointed in it with a number that's referenced on the plan, um, or something like that. And something the penny just dropped for me because I believe that must be where the phrase trailblazer comes from. Yes. Haha. <laughs> there you go. So uh, you were right in saying that the route that all four of these explorers followed is the route that roughly follows uh, what is now the Great Western Highway and also the train line is similar. So basically up to Katoomba, across to Mount Victoria, and then down. Right. I don't want to get too antsy here, but we're quite a long way in. I still haven't heard anything about these drinks that you've been promising. Nah, you will, you will. So Evans, he followed the others and he went a bit further. He went all the way out to Bathurst, which he named after the colonial secretary. His bloody colonial secretaries. I think Sydney's named after the colonial secretary, right? Yeah, and they never came. Yeah, so ungrateful. It's, it's seem, yeah, it's a shame. And Evans, had the uh, being the official sanctioned guy, had the pleasure of naming many of the things he came across. And boy, are there a few classics so apart from Bathurst, which is a fairly sort of straightforward That's choice, land. yeah, he uh, he named also the Macquarie River after his benefactor. Yeah, Macquarie has a lot of things named after him. Most of that he did himself, actually, yeah, he... but the river was named by Evans. Okay. Now, the when he got over the mountains, the first thing he came to was a, a river, a small a small brook, I suppose, um, which is in a place that we now call Hartley, and he named it. Uh, well, he didn't he didn't name it. He, he referred to it in his diary as a rivulet, except he couldn't spell rivulet, so he wrote riverlet, and now we know it today as the riverlet. That's great. Yeah. He also named the most sort of uh, obvious landmark on the journey from um, Lithgow to Bathurst on the plains there that sticks out, this big rocky escarpment that sticks out. He named that Evans Crown. Nice. So that one looks really cool. I'll name that one after me. Yeah, and the first river he came to that was flowing westerly was teeming with fish so he called it fish river bingo (laughs) brilliant this man was a man of great inventiveness and he's the one who i've mentioned to you before where in his diary he always says gee i wish they'd sent someone who could describe this phenomenal landscape but i can't so i'll just say that it is truly incredible and words to that effect over and over again he literally couldn't find the words and I just wanted to ask as well, you said that the for the Fish River was uh, the first one he found heading west. Uh, the the Macquarie River also flows west, right? But did you just find that afterwards? Yeah, so the, the Macquarie forms the confluence of the Fish and the Campbell. Okay. 
I take it the fish is no longer uh, flooded with fish. No, no, sadly not. It's been dammed and degraded by uh, cattle grazing. So Probably Lawson's fault. Yeah, and carp. If you do find fish in there, it'll be carp. Yeah. I think that might be the Germans' fault, but that's another story for another day. Absolutely. Stop trying to derail mine. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. There's some classic stories about naming there. The, uh, the Fish River and the River Let, two of my favourite uh, <laughs> names from our... <laughs> From our podcast so far. Yes, he's certainly a character, that George Evans. Um, and I got to chat George Evans with David Goldney, who's a historian and ecologist uh, based in Bathurst. And he, as I say in the documentary, he literally wrote the book on the Cox's Road. Um, Hang on. This he wrote is, a book called... This isn't Evans. This is the academic, right? This is the academic, Very yes. Nice. No, Evans is no literary figure, uh, as his diaries attest. <laughs> Uh, but it didn't stop David Goldney writing a book called Cox's Road Dreaming. Uh, and I used that for a lot of the, the research I did into the um, sort of explorer's angle at the beginning of the documentary. Nice. Those early, early accounts are really interesting for their descriptions of the landscape, how it looked at that time. And then when you compare it to what you see now, uh, often that's, it's mind-blowing how different the, the landscape is since we've kind of degraded it. Oh, they're fascinating. And I got way, way too deep. You know, I love a quote, <laughs> a lengthy passage of 19th I do. century do prose. Do they make it into the documentary by any chance? I managed to snip, slip a couple in, but uh, I, I'll admit that in the, in the filming of the documentary, I recorded many, many more <laughs> that it turned out probably didn't make quite as compelling viewing as I'd first thought. <laughs> probably got superior editing to this podcast as well. Need to get yeah. Nick in to edit us. <laughs> Nick and M, yes, we've got a very professional editing team behind following the flow. Uh, unlike this podcast, where it's just us, <laughs> we edit ourselves <laughs> and think that everything's great. Exactly. Uh, so, on that note, let's move to another snippet about a little town that, as you'll recall from this episode, Alistair is very dear to my heart. Yeah, uh, it's it's Wellington in the not so from Sydney episode. <laughs> the town where the bell meets the Macquarie. After the railway and the pronouncement of the township, Wellington definitely enjoyed its heyday around the turn of the century. And if there's one thing we know about places enjoying their heyday around the turn of the century, it is fabulous architecture of which Wellington abounds. Mm, You're really selling the place. Very interesting. Yeah, I do like it. I do like it. There's lots of beautiful um, 1890s and 1900s buildings. They are in various states of repair, and some of them are serving the purpose which they are built, but probably more aren't. They've either been repurposed or they're sort of empty or, or partly used, but largely not. But yeah, there's a few big old pubs, some old banks. The train station's a classic Central West train station. They all look the same. And yeah, so lots of beautiful architecture. And the good thing is because the town hasn't really grown since then, it's retained that character. Right. With a new air of decay about the place, but it's not one of those towns like... Um, Sydney, where all these new architectural styles have just been layered over the top and you're really sort of, you know, pulling needles out of a haystack trying to find a a building from a particular era. Right, and really, really struggling to get any sense of what it would have felt like, for instance, 100 years ago. Yeah, Wellington, you can really imagine it quite easily. So the next big change came to the area in 1950 when construction began on Burundong Dam, uh, which was finished and opened 15 years later. Now, it's the seventh largest dam in the state, 
and it regulates the flow of the Macquarie and it's about 15 or 20 k's upstream from the town. Okay, upstream. Okay, that means that the lake is on the others way, way up there kind of thing. Well, it's not that far. 20 kilometers, did you say? Yeah, not right. far at all. Um, what it does mean is that the river through town is completely regulated by the dam. Yes. So as you head further downstream, you get creeks and tributaries flowing in. That means if there's a big rainfall event, the river will come up. Because Wellington's so close to the dam, even during like pretty hectic flood and rainfall events, the river in town will stay low. Yeah, okay, because all they're getting is le- like less than 20 kilometers worth of rain. Yeah, exactly. Unless the unless the rain's so hectic that the dam's full and they're having to release, which is relevant at the moment. But um, unless that's happening, yeah, it's it's basically the river doesn't sort of go up or down in Wellington anymore. Right, which I imagine is quite sad. Probably doesn't look as nice as it would have. It it is sad. It's ecologically means the river doesn't function the way you know all the different sort of species that rely on the river evolved for it to, which is coming up. And dropping back down like that's the what the rivers do because there's these huge sort of we get huge weather events and then periods of protracted drought yeah um so that doesn't happen and yeah it's totally totally changed the character of the river in town um and it sort of means that the river in town ref- sort of reflects the air of decay of the architecture in town it's sort of just a, a sort of somberness i feel about the whole place right both environmentally and sort of in terms of the the human settlement there yeah because it's more so it's more of a like trickle the the river at that point it does vary a bit it's definitely not a trickle because the reason the dam was built was partly flood mitigation but mainly to facilitate huge irrigation schemes down um further downstream than dubbo okay so all the water from the dam is released and sent downstream to these irrigation schemes regular flow yeah it's, so it's not it's not that it's low. It was low. It was really low last year. But it's it's not that low. It's just very steady. Right. Okay. And like enormously lower than it would have been um, pre the dam building. So it has yeah it has dropped a lot. But it's still a still a large river. As I said, seventh largest dam in the state. Right. Okay. So there's a lot of water coming out of it. Yeah. A consistent, very very consistent mm. flow. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, it also has, like, I guess that's a part of the town's character as well, is there's a big fishing club and a big, like, water wreck scene right. with jet skis and caravan parks on the dam and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that definitely seems to happen with those. Um, you do get a lake when you get a dam. You do. Um, there's four places you can cross the Macquarie and Wellington, which might seem sort of a, an unnecessary piece of information, but they have a bit of interesting history about them, so I'm going to dwell on them for a sec. The first one you come to if you're coming down the river towards Wellington is the Nanima Falls, which was a granite pinch point. So it's where the river shallowed out and it was would have been pre-settlement, one of the easier natural crossing points on the river. Mm, a ford. But since then, it's sort of been like, you know, partially leveled and sealed. But you can still drive across it when the river's not too high. Oh, okay. So that's not a bridge or anything. That's just a straight old school ford. You just drive straight yeah. through the water. Yeah. Um, but when, yeah, it's also, it's sort of like got a waterfall appearance to it. Okay. Um, a very small one. Um, and then uh, the next bridge you get to as you head downstream is the rail bridge, which is a classic Central West 1880s steel truss bridge. 
Uh, they're sort of quite beautiful. I was going to say, I imagine you quite like that one. Yeah, it's nice. Single track. Then there's the main Mitchell Highway Bridge, which was built in 1991 following the collapse of the existing bridge when a switch a semi-trailer brought down oh, no. in 1989. So for two years, they didn't have a bridge. Then. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah. And um, there's some great images of that that incident on the internet, which you should check out if you're interested. So that's an excellent point. The uh, army was brought in to deal with this issue. And what they did was they built a low-level bridge downstream for people to get across the river in those intervening two years. But that took a couple of months to get up and running. And so in that intervening period, people used the railway bridge to get across. And so there's some other great photos of people droving sheep across this single-track railway bridge in 1990. Wow. Yeah. I imagine hopefully there were no uh, bad instances of a train coming that someone wasn't expecting while they were crossing the bridge. I like to think that it was carefully managed. Yeah. I think actually uh, people are pretty good at figuring out. Given that, that the stuff army out. was there building a bridge, I'm going to say it was. <laughs> also, the trains don't come that frequently. No, we're just uh, one, one a day in each direction at that point. And the other thing that's interesting is that the steel from the original highway bridge that collapsed in 1989 has been turned into an eye catching sculpture on the highway cool and i've driven past it countless times and wondered about it and it's um it's a really interesting sort of like a community art piece about what people think of the town and different elements of the town so if you do drive past it definitely check out the big weird sculpture and it's made of an old bridge Mm. cool it sounds like a fascinating town Ah, yes, the episode about Wellington. I think probably our most rogue episode to date. Very specific about the many entryways to Wellington and the uh, bridge history thereof. (laughs) I will say that following the flow includes a lot less detail about how to cross the Macquarie River and a lot more detail about the Macquarie River. Uh, Well, um, I I regret to say that I haven't driven past Wellington since you gave me advice about what to look at when I do so. But one day I will. And I, I very much looking forward to, to getting there. Uh, the the ep- Wellington episode uh, definitely split our, our listeners down the middle between raving fans and people a little disappointed by such a niche story. But uh, I, I really loved it. And I'm, I'm very glad that you uh, brought that little bit of uh, New South Wales into our lives. And fabulous to have an opportunity to uh, dredge it out of the vault again <laughs> yeah, one absolutely. more time. And, and you can see your interest in the, the river levels and the dams and things like that uh, Yeah, in that episode coming out. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing it all stitched together in the documentary. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to showing, showing even more people the documentary. We got such a positive response in Dubbo, uh, which was a huge relief, to be quite frank with you. <laughs> Um, so I'm feeling a lot more confident that it's a, it's a really excellent piece of cinema. I think that for people who, who live in Sydney and might have a small amount of experience or even no experience of what Western New South Wales is like, I think this is a great way to, to dip your toes in and, and learn a little bit more about the West of our state in, uh, in an hour and a half. Wonderful. Um, I will definitely be there on a different night from my wife so the other one can look after the children. It's very well organized by you, Jed, having it two nights in a row <laughs> on the weekend. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't wait to learn more about it. I, I genuinely only have little snippets of information, so it'll be great to get it all, bring it all together. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Following the Flow, head to followingtheflow.com.au where you can watch our trailer or search for the Golden Age Cinema website and head there to book tickets. We'd love to see you there.
See you next time for more stories from Sydney.